0: From Parkway Church in Kurana, this is the Parkway Podcast. Our prayer is that this message blesses and encourages you today as you listen. If you would like to know more information on who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. All right. If you got a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Pastor Call. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. I'm excited to be able to bring the word today. As I've been diving into Ephesians, I've been getting really excited about it. And I was talking to uh, my wife, Jody late last night, just before we were about to go to bed, about how my, myself and those who share and teach actually are, get the greatest benefit because we tend to retain the most. Unfortunately for you on that end, you're probably going to remember this maybe for a few days, a week, hopefully longer than that. How many of you can honestly say that you remember every message that I've ever I've ever preached? I appreciate your honesty. I remember, I don't even remember every message I've ever preached, but I remember a lot of it, right? Because I'm engaging, I'm studying, and 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 then I teach that or I share that. And so it gets locked in there a little bit more. So my encouragement is that when you just sit and listen, that's just one form of retaining and, and reception. But if you take notes, if you write stuff down, you might actually retain it a little bit longer. And if you come prayerfully and willfully with an open heart, the Spirit of God might speak to you. And I might share about one thing about, that I'm going to share today, but he might talk to you about something completely different. And I don't know if you've ever had those moments with the Holy Spirit, but they kind of get locked in you. You know what I'm saying? Those are the things you remember. Like that moment he shared that, it just kind of sticks, you know? So come with an open heart, but take notes. Notes don't forget, you do. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says this. We're looking at two verses today. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the text. We're uh, A few weeks ago, we set a foundation for this series. If you were here, we looked at Acts chapter 19, and we're going to be trekking through uh, this book, Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and I believe that God is really going to shape us and awaken us to a new way of living for him. But let's bow our heads, and because I can talk, but I want the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you that we can come and worship you. We thank you that we're here together as the church, Lord. We thank you that this is valuable. This is important that we come together. You say, do not neglect coming together. So we come together, God. We look at your word, but I pray that as I share, Lord, you would speak to every heart, every soul, every mind. Let us receive what you want to say. I pray that you'd give us discernment and clarity to distinguish your voice from our own this morning, your thoughts from our own thoughts. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Daryl Johnson is a theologian, professor, author, and pastor who wrote commentary on Ephesians. I've been reading it, and he shares a story of a college student that came up to him one, one day, a, a Chinese college student that was going back to China and asked him this question. He said, what would you say to young disciples trying to bring transformation to their country? What would you say to a young person trying to change their country? And he said, I got three things. Number one is stay close to Jesus. Number two, soak in the word of God. And number three is learn to pray. Those are the very simple steps of what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. You ever wonder what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Stay close to Jesus, soak in his word, and learn to pray. So this college student followed up and said, well, okay, you know, stay close to Jesus. Yeah, I got that. Learning to pray, we, you know, okay. How do I soak in the word? Where do I soak in the word? This is a pretty extensive collection of writings. What is the most valuable? What is the most important? Where should I soak? And so he gave this young student five different areas. Number one was Matthew chapter five through seven, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And then he said, Paul's discipleship road, Romans chapters five through eight. And then he said, John 13 to 17, when Jesus sat down with his disciples in the upper room and he shared some teaching. Revelations 1 through 3, where Jesus gave messages to seven churches, and then he said the book of Ephesians. Soak in Ephesians. How do you change your country? You soak in the word. The psalmist said this. He says, I meditate on your precepts. How many of you sit there and contemplate the scriptures? Joshua, God said to Joshua, to meditate on the law day and night, to be careful to do what is in it. Paul said to young Timothy, a young pastor in a church that was large at the time, he said, scripture is God breathed. Scripture, the word of God is breathed by God and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. You know, one of the biggest problems with our discipleship today and the maturity of Christians is not that we lack admiration for Jesus. We love Jesus. Some people even say, Jesus is my home dog, right? But he should not be, he should be your Lord. No, not your little buddy. We love Jesus, but it's our lack of being richly formed by the word of God. We Formation is something that happens daily for us. We are being formed every single day. Who you are right now is a byproduct of every message you take in on a daily basis. The issue is not that we are being transformed. It's that we're being formed by culture and society. I bet if everybody in this room were to write down how much time they spend on media or receiving media or getting media messages in comparison to messages in the word, it would be a lopsided scale or graph, whatever. Right? Let's be honest. We're formed by culture because we're engulfed in news and streaming and social networking and less by the teachings of Jesus and the the Apostles. So think of it this way, your thinking, just what you think, your theology, you know, and sometimes we don't understand what that means. It just means God speak or God word, God understandings, what you believe about God, your theology, your practices, your habits, your politics, whether or not you hold to this side of the controversial ideology or that side what you believe about touchy topics such as abortion and gender identity and sexual identity and social justice and euthanasia and genetic engineering, your faith, your beliefs, your everything is formed by what you consume the most, by what you soak in. That's just reality. There's a study done in 2009 by the Center of Bible Engagement and they studied 40,000 people from 8 to 80 on the effectiveness of engaging in God's Word. And the studies revealed that if you engaged in the Word of God just once a week, and that could be what we're doing right here right now, right? You go, you go to church and someone, you know, reads and talks at you. Or maybe it's for you. It's you open up the Version Bible app and you get the Word of the day or, you know, whatever you're... Your, your d- daily devotion is of choice. You get that once a week, you know, where someone happens to share something on Facebook and that's your word. You get one once a week. The effectiveness on your life is minimal, if not nothing. Zero zilch nada. Twice a week, zero zilch nada. Three times a week, minor improvement. You know, there's like a little heartbeat. Well, that person's a little bit alive. But what they, revealed, what they noticed in their study and what was revealed to them was if, if somebody engaged in Scripture to any degree four days out of the week, this is what they noticed. Feeling lonely drops 30%. Anger drops 32%. Bitterness in relationships, marriage, family, you know, in your workplace, all relationships, drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Premarital sex drops 68%. Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Anybody feel spiritually stagnant? There's your problem. Watching porn drops 61%. Now here's the flip side. Sharing your faith jumps 200%. Discipling others jumps 230%. Memorizing scripture increases 407%. So, Darrell Johnson suggests soaking the word, soaking Ephesians. Paul's letter to this young church. In the culturally pagan city of Ephesus. Now, I talked a little bit about Ephesus. I want to share a little bit more. Ephesus was a large urban city that was culturally diverse. It was the center of trade. Its economy flourished on the sales of idols made to Artemis, who was the Greek goddess of fertility and hunting. Life was centered around temple worship. Pagan practices were mainstream, and it was difficult to be a Christian. Not unlike our culture and society today in our nation. Because life centered around temple worship and the Greek goddess Artemis, the trades guild focused most of their attention to crafting idols. And Christianity disrupted business because people became followers of Jesus and they stopped purchasing idols to worship. So if you chose to be a Christian, on the other hand, you were likely kicked out of the guild, right out of the union, because you were endangering sales and economy. Because life was for them about Artemis. and Artemis was the protector and wife of Ephesus. That's what they referred to Artemis as, the wife of Ephesus. So if you chose to be a Christian in Ephesus, in this ancient city of Ephesus, now modern-day Turkey, you were going against the grain of of culture. You're quite literally walking against the grain of culture. So this created a lot of obstacles and a lot of difficulties for believers. Life was costly. In fact, this was what the mark of the beast represented in the book of Revelation. The mark of of the beast in Revelation is not a physical mark. It's a metaphorical allegory for allegiance because in Ephesus... If you chose not to go with the flow of culture, life was costly for you. You would lose your job. They would not let you purchase. They would not let you go about your life because you were now marked as a Christian as opposed to marked by culture. Temple worship was life. So Paul writes this letter at Ephesians to this young church. It's about six, seven years old about what it means to be the church and what it means to follow Jesus in a culture that is Pagan. You know, we too live in a culture that is perversely, pervasively anti-Christ and anti-God. And yet God still calls us to see that we're part of something bigger. That we're part of something more. And through his word and through this letter still calls us to live a life worthy of the call of Christ. And that's what I think Paul was trying to get to the Ephesians that maybe we're struggling to follow Christ in their culture. He's like, you are a part of something more. If you read the book of Ephesians, you see in the first half, he kind of begins by just exploring who Jesus was and how they are a part of his plan of redemption. And then the second half is kind of like how to live for him. He's he's painting a bigger picture of what it means to follow Jesus in this world. So he's, he's, he begins his letter by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus. So Paul is writing from prison. He's writing a lot of these letters, a few of these letters he writes from prison. They're called the prison letters. He's writing from prison on how to live for Jesus to a young church that's probably having some difficulty living for Jesus. About two years after he left Ephesus, we read in the book of Acts that he's imprisoned for his endeavors to share the gospel. Has anybody ever felt like the government was going to come against you, not because of what you chose to do or not to do, but because you're preaching Jesus? Paul was imprisoned for preaching Jesus. Not politics, Jesus. And in his letter, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ prisoner of the Lord. He doesn't call himself a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't call himself a prisoner of Caesar. He sees his circumstances as the hand of God. No one else has control over Paul's life and Paul's mind. And when you read his letters, he has a a very wide theology of suffering and he counts his circumstances as blessed suffering for the sake of the gospel. If you read Paul's letters, and I wondered as I was thinking about that, I wondered what that would have spoken to these people in Ephesus who might have been struggling to follow Jesus. Here's this apostle writing this encouraging letter from prison in prison for preaching about Jesus. Because I don't know about you, but suffering's really difficult. But when you know that someone else has walked or is walking or is with you in your shoes, there's a little strength to endure, right? When you know you're not alone in it, there's there's a strength to your endurance that is given, that is not there when you feel like you're alone. So he says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. No one else has control, guys. That's what he's saying. No one else has control over you. You may have lost your position in the guild." You may have lost your ability to buy and sell. You may be ostracized from society because you burned your idols. Remember, they had a big bonfire and burned all their idols. But no one else is in control but God. So Paul addresses himself as being handpicked by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. I want to focus more on here. An apostle of Christ, he says, "Jesus, apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God in eternity past Selected Paul and set him apart for this purpose. Now, if you know anything about Paul's life, we begin knowing about Paul and he shows up on the scene in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 9, and there he's referred to as Saul. And he's an enemy of the church and he's a man in a high position among the Pharisees. And he's actually gone on a journey to jail and persecute And kill Christians. But then he has this encounter with Jesus that changes him. A radical transforming encounter with Jesus that radically changed him. And he goes from someone who thought Christians were blasphemous heretics to someone who is willing to go to prison for Jesus to the point of death for Jesus, radical transformation. It's our heart, this church, and our vision that we would see everyone experience Jesus in a life-changing way. And we see that in Paul's life, a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. Just so you know, when he got saved, God didn't look at him and say, you are now Paul, no longer Saul. When you start looking in the book of Acts and you see that there's this shift from using his, his Hebrew name, Saul, to Paul, it's actually a missionary tactic because he's reaching Greek people. And so he starts to speak and he starts to be referred to as Paul. It's easier to reach a people group when you kind of have something in common. So his, his name is Paul. And we see in, in, in the book of Acts, Paul is a Jew son of a Jewish mother mother and father, born in a Roman city that was highly influenced by Greek culture. This makes Paul masterfully crafted to be an apostle of Jesus to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and much of the region was influenced by Greek and ruled by Romans. He has a unique shape that God uses for his kingdom and for this purpose. And so do you. It's easy to glamorize the people of scripture and put them on this pedestal. And rightfully so, like God did amazing things through Paul, but he can do amazing things through you. And your shape, your your spiritual gifts, your heart and your passions, your ability, your personalities, your experiences, is uniquely you. There is no one like you. No one, down to your DNA. There is nobody that is like you. And God can use that shape for his kingdom and his purpose in this time and in this generation. You know, as a young parent, a lot of people say to us or look at us and think, oh, I don't know if I would want my kids born in a time like this. I don't know if I want to raise kids in a world like this and half the time I think, oh yeah, that's me. I got to do that, you know? But then I stop and remember that God forms us in the womb. You know, parents do their thing. Babies grow in the mom. But it says that God knits us together in the womb. Your, Your DNA mix and makeup is formed by God. So that tells me that God knew who you were going to be because he formed and shaped you that way. But what we do is we compare, right? We get envious of others and what others have. But God can take what we have and he can take our shape and our design and he can redeem it for his purposes. And we see this in Paul. Paul was a, born to a fairly wealthy Jewish family. They were tent makers and tent makers was a, was a good trade back then we know they were tent makers because Paul was a tent maker. That's how he funded most of his, of, of his ministry. And you didn't learn your trade except from your father and your family household. He was born in Tarsus in Cilicia. And Tarsus was a Roman colony, which gave Paul Roman citizenship. The Roman Empire was the ruling kingdom. But as a Roman citizen, you had different rights. You had more rights you could travel more easily across the Roman Empire. You'd access to the country. When prosecuted for crimes, they had to treat you differently, which actually led to Paul's advantage. He used this to his advantage. At this time, Tarsus and the whole region was greatly Hellenized, which means it's influenced by a pervading Greek culture. Rolled by the Roman Romans. Rolled by the Romans. Ruled by the Romans, that's what I meant to say, sounds a lot better. Greek in culture. They didn't speak Latin, they spoke Koine Greek. That means Greek culture, Greek philosophy, Greek sexual ethic, Greek art, Greek pagan practices. That's the culture under Roman rule. That's why the New Testament was originally written in Greek. Some Aramaic, but mostly Greek, because that was the culture. So Paul is born a Jew in a Roman colony under Roman rule that is in a Greek and culture. Now Jews hated Hellenization. They hated it. So they resisted it. They, They despised the culture. They despised the people. And this led to a lot of Jewish revolts. So Paul grows up in this world. This is the world in which Paul grows up in. And we see that he becomes a Pharisee. It tells us a little something about his life that Paul leaned into his Jewish heritage. You don't see him kind of turning from it, which most didn't. You don't see him kind of turning from it. He leans heavily into it. Pharisees were a strict, legalistic, nationalistic group of scribes. They were experts in the law. They were one of the main proponents against Jesus, right? And he studies, we learn, in Jerusalem, which was the center of the Jewish religion, under a significantly influential teacher, Gamaliel, So he grows up Hellenized in Tarsus and Judaized in Jerusalem. And so we get this picture of this man, Saul Paul, born a Roman citizen, grows up in Greek culture, resists it, trains in Jerusalem to become a Pharisee, a strict religious, legalistic, nationalistic, expert in the law who knows Greek culture in and out and has the rights of a Roman citizen. And then he meets Jesus. And then he meets Jesus. Everything changes when a person truly encounters Christ. And I mean the person, not the information. I mean the person, not knowledge. God takes this package of a man and redeems it. The whole lot in the encounter in Acts chapter 9, you can read about it, Jesus confronts Paul. He confronts his purpose, he confronts his identity, and then he physically blinds him. And then turns his experiences and his training for God's glory. We read about this disciple named Ananias, who Jesus shows up to in a vision, which tells us that Ananias is a spirit-filled believer. Young men will have visions. Jesus shows up to him in a vision and tells him to go and lay his hands on Paul. And Ananias is a little apprehensive because he's heard about this guy. He's like, I don't know, I've heard about this guy. Like he's jailing us. He's persecuting. He's trying to kill us. Remember Stephen, when he was stoned, they laid his coats down at his feet. I won't go near that guy. You want me to put my hands on that dude? I want to go in the opposite direction of where that man is. That's not what he said. That's my commentary. That's my translation. But he was apprehensive. I've heard about this man and what he's been doing to to our people. And this is what Jesus said to Ananias. He said, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Chosen instrument by God for purpose. Invite the worship team to come uniquely set apart, elected to be an apostle of Jesus by the will of God, he says. Not by his own will. He doesn't say an apostle, Jesus, by my choice. Doesn't say an apostle of Christ by what I wanted to do with my life. He says by the will of God. Now, he's alluding to the fact that he didn't have a choice, but surely he did. But he had a radical encounter with Jesus. He had heard about the teachings of Jesus because he knew of the, the group, the way, the Christians. He knew of them. He thought they were heretics. He wanted nothing to do with them. He wanted to eradicate them. So no doubt he had heard about this man who, who had supposedly been raised from the dead, died on the cross for the sins of the world. He rejected it until he met the man, until he met Jesus. And God called him to be a part of his team and his mission. And that reshaped him. That reshaped all those experiences, his upbringing, his training for God's kingdom. So here's what I say to you today. If you don't know Jesus, you are not a follower of Christ. You do not call yourself a Christian. And you're looking at your life and you're looking at the mix of your experiences And you're looking at your upbringing and you're looking at your abilities and you're wondering what could come of all this. You know, when when you're younger, sometimes we ask the question, what's my purpose in life? What am I supposed to do with my life? And I don't think that really stops. Sometimes I still ask that question. Jesus is like, "Um, we've had this talk multiple times. What am am I supposed to do now? And in different seasons, you ask the same question. What now? What now? What's my purpose? Maybe you're here and you're looking at the mix of your, your experiences and you're looking at your upbringing, your abilities, and you're kind of thinking, what could come of all this? Maybe you see a mess. Maybe you see pain. Maybe you see hurt. If you turn to Jesus, he can redeem that. He takes a mess and he makes a message. He takes pain and he makes a platform. He turns stumbling blocks into stepping stones. I got more. He brings chaos into clarity. He turns noise into a melody. He transforms obstacles into opportunities. This one was fun. He turns scars into stars. Jesus can redeem all that you are. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8:28 that he can use all things for good. All things. Now if you're a follower of Jesus, not only has God chosen Paul for his purpose, but he's chosen you for his purpose. If you were in Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, he says to the believers, he says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Now keep in mind, if you can, the Ephesian church began by being called out of their pagan culture. With all of their experiences, right, when when Paul first showed up to Ephesus, he started saying that those gods are no gods at all. And multitudes of them took their idols and they burned them in a giant bonfire. And he says, you're chosen. You've been predestined before the foundation of the world. God selected you. And just as God redeems Paul, he can redeem your life. So that means your home, your upbringing, your experiences, good and bad, the things that have shaped you are there, but there is a final work to be done. When you meet Christ face to face and you realize that you are also a chosen instrument. In Christ, no longer are you so and so the businessman a tradesman, a dad, a mom. You're so-and-so, a disciple of Christ by the will of God. Isn't it so funny that we, we kind of identify who we are by what we do? It's the first question when you meet someone new. What do you do? I, I had somebody ask me that last night. It's always interesting when they hear my answer. <laughs> oh, okay. Hmm. Pastor, pastoring. Eh? Right? We identify by what we do or what we like to do. But in Christ, that's not who we are. Paul says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Who are you? A disciple of Christ by the will of God, a follower of Jesus by the will of God. Oh, yeah, and I make tents on the side. You're so and so. So, what does that do to someone living in an anti Christ culture full of paganism? What does that do to these people as they hear that? It reminds them that they're part of something bigger. You are part of something bigger than your job, you are part of something bigger than your family, you're part of something bigger than what's happening in the world. You're part of something bigger than the culture and society. You're part of something bigger than what you see on the news. You're part of something bigger than what you read about. You're part of something bigger than what you think about. When you look at your life and all that's happening and has happened, when you're looking at everything that has made you you, and we tend to focus on the bad and the ugly and the negative. God's reminding us you're part of something bigger. So look how he addresses them. He says, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus to God's holy people. You want to know what the word holy means? It conjures up a lot in our minds. Probably a lot of us would think I'm not holy because we think of like miracle men, right? Sages. We say those guys are holy. Holy means set apart. Simply put, set apart. When I take one cup and I set it apart from the rest, that one's holy. I've consecrated it. I've set it apart. What is Paul saying to these people? You have been set apart by God. You are God's holy people. You're a follower of Christ. You've you've believed in Jesus. You've turned to him. You're repentant of sin. You're part of the holy people of God. Set apart. Just as Paul is a chosen instrument by the will of God, you are a chosen person. Set apart. So how dare you think of anything less about yourself? How dare you think you're not worthy? Because in Christ, you're his holy people. In Christ, you're part of his instruments that he's going to use to impact the world. Now, here's the implications, and then we're going to sing together in worship. There's a lot, but I got three. Chosen people, set apart people belong to Jesus. Number one, chosen people, set apart people belong to Jesus. If I'm chosen by him, set apart for him, then I'm his. I belong to him. Which means my life is not my own. I can't make claim on it anymore. My time, my resources, my talent, my family, my career, it all belongs to him. He bought it on the cross. He paid for it with his life. So I'm his. Now we sing about that and we say that, but we don't often live that, right? We sing about it in our churches. We say it maybe to friends. We talk about it, but we don't live it. Forgive us, Lord. Which leads to number two. Chosen people set apart people who belong to him live for Jesus. Chosen people... Set apart people who belong to Jesus, live for Jesus. If I'm chosen by him, set apart for him, belong to him, then my life is lived for him. All that I do and why I do it is for him. All that I do, everything that I do. Not just what I do at church, not just my role as part of the dream team on a Sunday morning once a month. Just so you know, if that's how you're serving Jesus, you're not serving Jesus. Jesus gets once a month, on a Sunday morning, that is not serving Jesus. How do you serve Jesus? Every moment of every day with your life, it's a living sacrifice. If I'm chosen by him, set apart by him, belong to him, that I live for him. That means when you work to make money and income, whatever it is you do, you do it for the glory of God. That means when I spend said money, even if it is to pay for my rent or my groceries, I do it for the glory of God. When I cut my grass, thank you, Jesus, I have grass to cut. Do it for the glory of God. When you pick the weeds out of the garden, you're like, why do I put myself through this torment? Do it for the glory of God. When you're having that difficult conversation with your spouse, that you don't want to have and you want to avoid because it's easier to avoid, but you bring it up anyway. You do it for the glory of God because God is a God of reconciliation. He loves marriage. When you discipline your child, even though it's hard or difficult, and maybe sometimes you suck at it, and you fail at it, you go too far. But you look at, my life is not my own. I belong to him, therefore I live for him. I do it in such a way that honors him. Because chosen people set apart for him, belong to him, and then live for him. That's why I'm alive. That's why you're here. Do you know that? You're made by him and for him. You're not you're not the byproduct of slime and time and chance. You are made by an intelligent designer who formed you for himself to bring him glory. Did you know? I could just keep preaching about this. We're going to be here another 45 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. Did you know that your unique shape, uniquely designed for you and your interests and your passions were put in there by God, which means some of you love to sing. And so you come and you sing, you sing in the shower. And when you do that and you do it for the glory of God and you're just singing, maybe you're singing, Mary had a little lamb but you're belting out the tune and you love to sing, Mary had a little lamb. That might not be the right tune. I have no idea. I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) But you're doing that for the glory of God. It pleases him because that's how he designed you and formed you. And therefore you're using what he designed you to do for his glory. In the shower, sing Mary had a little lamb. Little tongue twister. Did you know that when you're picking weeds out the garden and you love to garden because you love to be in nature and you like going for walks, and going for walks just like does something and bringing you life and being outside and cutting grass and pulling weeds and shaping plants and all that. You're just like, ah, oh, this is great. And you do it for the glory of God. It pleases him because he put that in you. And if you're like some of us and you like to study and you like to read and you like to dig deep and you like to contemplate things that other people don't even understand. And you're like, I don't even know if I understand it, but I'm feeling alive when I'm doing it. And you want to talk to other people about it and they look at you like you're flipping crazy. You're like, oh, who are you? Go study in a school or something. But you do it for the glory of God. It pleases him. Because he's a creative God who, who designed people and shaped people to be different on purpose. Because then he can look at his creation who designed for him and to bring him glory and be pleased and be honored. Last one. Chosen people, set apart people who belong to him and live for him find their identity in him. If I'm chosen by him, I'm set apart for him, I belong to him, I live for him, then in him I find what makes me me. Not anywhere else. This is not a comfortable one for some people. Not in what I do, not in my skills not in my training, not in my job, not in my race, not in the color of my skin, not in the shape of my body, not in my gender, not in my sexuality. Anytime that we put those things and we make ourselves identified By those things, we are following demonic spirits that are seeking to lead us away from Christ. Not in my home country. I grew up in a home that glorified England, because that was home country, homeland. For 15 years of my life, 15 years of my life before I became a Canadian citizen. I know I look Canadian, I speak Canadian must be Canadian. I am Canadian because I am Canadian citizen, but for 15 years I wasn't. And in a funny kind of way, my parents led me to believe that it was all about England. But we were living in England, England's so great. Why aren't we there? Huh? Why do we leave there to come here? <laughs> I don't find my identity in my home country. Not in my role in my home either. I find my identity in him. See, the problem with these alternatives is that they're not sufficient for life. Something will happen. Something will come and those things won't hold up. I will lose my job. What happens when you lose your job? And people's worlds fall apart. Some of you know what I'm talking about. What happens when you don't get the job? Maybe you've trained in school and you've spent thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars, years of your life to be this, and then there's no jobs. And you're what? Your whole world crashes. Your soul aches because you've wrapped up who you are in that thing. What happens when your marriage falls apart? Hopefully it doesn't. What happens when your family falls apart? If my identity is in those things, when those things suffer or fall, then I fail. If I wrap up my identity in something other than him, that something at some point will not be sufficient to hold me up. Therefore, when I put my identity in Christ where it should be, because we believe in this church and this Bible, and this Bible says that we were created by him and for him, therefore, when I put my identity in him, regardless of what happens, I still have stable ground to stand on. Lose my job, that sucks. Really difficult. What am I gonna do? I still gotta pay bills. Bills are getting more expensive. Gotta figure that out and not be a lazy bum. But I'm okay, because I'm a child of God, chosen by Him, by His will. This is really difficult. My family right now, family's falling apart, and I don't know what to do, and my kids aren't talking to me, and my kid wants to leave. I'm okay though. I'm not okay. because that's my son that's my daughter and whatever but my identity is not in them it's my identity is not in a, being a mother or being a father or being a spouse it's in Christ now i get it that those things are part of it right i understand I am a father. My, my tag on my social networking says follower of Jesus first, and then I got, I got father and husband in there. I understand. That's part of identity. I get it. But you know what I'm saying? Chosen people, set apart people who belong to him and live for him, find their identity in him. Now, practically, I'm going to end here, and then we're going to worship. Practically, this doesn't happen instantaneously. I don't know about you, but I don't live out this truth, though I know this truth. I don't live it out well all the time. Though my life in Christ may have began in a moment, in a prayer, at an altar, an encounter with a friend, maybe just home alone with Jesus, instantaneous conversion, like like Paul who gave his life to Christ in this crazy encounter, it might have began in a moment. I'm not formed by that moment. I'm formed in Christ by regular habits and practices of devotion. That's why many people struggle to be in Christ, just so you know. That's why many people struggle with spiritual stagnation. So you're not practicing habits of spiritual formation, you're you're practicing habits of formation. Maybe even spiritual formation, but not Christ formation. Because you pick up something every day and you read it, but it's Facebook or Netflix or TikTok or whatever it is. The social networking thing that's up. And I don't know. I hear the new ones coming up. It means I'm getting older and I don't know them. But do I pick this up? So what do... Chosen, set apart people who belong to Christ, live for Him, do in order to be formed in Him and stay and remain in Him? What do Ephesian believers who are in this pagan culture do in order to remain in Christ? What do we do as Parkway people to hold on to these truths that I belong to Him, I live for Him, I find my identity in Him? Three things. You ready for them? Really easy. Number one, I stay close to Jesus. Number two is I soak in the word. And number three is I learn to pray. Spend each day doing doing those things. I'm not even going to give you a set number of time. Set number of time. I don't even know that word. I'm stumbling over words left, right, and center this morning. I'm not going to give you a time for each one. But if each day you can focus on staying close to Jesus, soaking in his word, and learning to pray, you will be formed in Christ. And over time, you will reflect what some people might say, that's a holy person. And you can say, yes, but not because of anything I am, because of all that he is. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing one final song together as worship and response as God's holy people. I think it's fitting that as God's holy people, we worship our God and our creator. So would you bow your heads as I pray, and then the team's going to lead us. Father, we thank you for this book that you've given us, these teachings from Paul to this church that we can learn from today. And I believe in Jesus' name that even as I shared this morning, Holy Spirit, you were speaking to hearts about who we are in you. And just as Paul was chosen and set apart, We have been chosen in Christ. Lord, for anyone here that does not know you, I pray in Jesus' name that they would look to the cross of Jesus, confess their sin, repent, and turn towards you in Jesus' name. But as we worship, God, would you be honored? Would you be glorified? We give you worship. One final song today. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, and we sing this song to you. For you are our God, and we are your people. In Jesus' name, amen.